Hi, friends. Welcome back to The Kids Table, a podcast where we discuss all things child development with a research and policy bent. I'm Haley. And I'm Caitlin. We are a researcher and policy analyst translating the science of child development for the public and integrating it with policy, practice, and trends in tech and business. Each month, we start with covering the latest cutting-edge research, popular media, the policy sphere, and then we go to our guest portion where you get to hear from an expert about the work they are doing in child development, research, policy, and practice. Haley, take it away for our policy updates. Thanks, Caitlin. So in honor of our special guest this episode, and to give you, dear listeners, an update on where things stand on the child care policy front, I wanted to share some updates from the end of last year. So for anyone not familiar with the congressional budget process, trust me, you're not alone, we're going to have a little government lesson. (laughs) Every fiscal year, the president and their advisors work to create a budget proposal for all of the agencies and programs that they believe need to be funded that year. Each chamber of Congress then, through their respective appropriations committees, reviews that budget proposal and then drafts their own bills detailing how federal dollars should be allocated for the subsequent year. So in 2022, the conversations about how money should be spent in 2023. These bills are usually divided up into 13 separate pieces of legislation that are distinguished by program and agency. So for example, there's one for agriculture, commerce, justice, state, defense, labor, health and human services, education, so on. It's a bit of a cluster, I'm not going to lie. Last year, negotiations about appropriations took a very long time to resolve. And when that happens, Congress often has to default to a vote for what's called a continuing resolution, which basically just authorizes the government to spend money at last year's levels, uh, which is not great when you need bigger investments in your programs of interest, but it is critical for staving off the ever-feared government shutdown. So, Ultimately, it wasn't actually until December that Congress actually pulled through an end-of-year spending package, formally entitled the Consolidated Appropriations Act for 2023. Okay, end lesson. Here's the update. Last year, child care champions on the House and Senate Appropriations Committees successfully secured investments in some really fantastic programs that are critical in providing support to children and families. And that includes uh, the Child Care and Development Block Grant, which we've talked about before on this podcast, Head Start and Early Head Start, which I hope most folks are familiar with, mm-hmm. the Individual with Disabilities Education Act, Parts B, which involves uh, preschool funding, and C, which involves funding for infants and toddlers, and Preschool Development Grants Birth Through Five. So all told, it's, you know, several billion dollars in funding across these programs, but they're all braided together to provide support to different specific communities for different kinds of childcare and early learning programs. And these investments are really huge for providers and families across the country. Mm-hmm. And the work that it took to move the needle on those commitments was enormous. But unfortunately, the work doesn't stop here. The childcare sector is in a remarkably precarious position, and it has been even since before the pandemic. And so the amount that it needs in public dollars, not only to sustain, but to grow and to improve the quality of the programs that our kids are enrolled in, to offer a range of options to families who might want center-based care or home-based care or faith-based care, and to guarantee enriching early experiences for kids while also compensating the workforce the way that they need to be compensated is just larger than what was included in the spending package. The gap is just bigger than what we covered. So the fight continues. 
Advocates are buckling up for another appropriations season, working to garner new advocates in what is now the 118th Congress Mm -hmm. and looking for some intermediate, maybe bipartisan pathways to get families the support that they need. So I will keep you all updated as conversations for the public develop. Stay tuned for more. And it's on to you for research updates, Caitlin. Awesome. Thanks so much, Haley. And I am so excited to hear from Maya in today's episode because she has that expertise in the childcare industry. And I think it's just really, really fortuitous timing. All right. So on to the research updates. So special announcement. Our podcast has a new team member, Catherine. (laughs) Hi, Catherine. Catherine is joining us as a research and policy correspondent. So I'm giving her a shout out today because she and I work together on this month's research updates. All right. So like I said, Maya will be talking to us today about her work in equity and equity being different from equality. So equality means everyone getting the same thing. And equity involves observing that people get something different based on what they need. We're going to unpack that in greater depth in today's episode. But one place that this distinction between equity and equality is really playing out in the public sphere is around affirmative action, which has appeared all over the news this month. So affirmative action is often framed as a story just about college admissions. But the Supreme Court's decision that's likely to come out sometime this summer can have much farther reaching consequences for all different levels of education. Mm -hmm. not just college. The debate around affirmative action is about which strategy is better for creating equitable access to education and the socioeconomic opportunities that come along with it. So option one is explicitly including race in policies to provide protections against systemic racism and implicit bias. Some people believe that excluding race as a consideration is the way to go because it can make protections for certain races and it can also be said to abridge the privileges or immunities of a subset of U.S citizens. So these are kind of the two takes on this issue. So option one, explicitly including race, and option two, excluding race. And in modern discussion, approach one has been talked about or thought about as a multicultural approach, and option two has been deemed this colorblind approach, not acknowledging race. Importantly, research has looked at the effects of these two approaches on interracial interactions, and there's mounting evidence that a colorblind approach leads to diminished ability to detect discrimination when it happens. And also it has the potential to perpetuate current racial hierarchies that are problematic. Developmental research has even shown that children are aware of race and develop different ways of thinking based on race really, really young. So even by a couple months. And one of the best ways to promote egalitarian attitudes in children is to talk to them about race explicitly and to mention all those factors that lead to inequalities that children are seeing and observing because kids do notice and they want to talk about it. And talking about it is one of the best ways to promote positive views. Yeah. And you and I were talking too about how for some families, they don't have the option not to talk to their children about race as a matter of safety for their kids to know, you know, how they're perceived when they go out into the world. I mean, we're already talking about a matter of inequality and just in terms of like who has to talk about race as a default. Right. Exactly. Even having that option to like to not have to talk about race like that is you're already in a privileged position to be able to do that. Like you're saying, it's a matter of survival. It's a matter of self-awareness and identity people of color. So coming full circle, the Supreme Court's decision on affirmative action is going to have really far-reaching consequences that's going to impact educational institutions at all levels.
rules. So the now predominantly conservative court is likely to rule against affirmative action and take a colorblind approach Mm -hmm. and therefore provide an opportunity to begin dismantling those initiatives, funding, and policies that are explicit about racial inequality. This could have consequences for children as public and private organizations move to adapt policies that follow suit. And affirmative action has far-reaching consequences because it's really about how we as a society can advance racial equity and promote equality for all. That's it for the research updates. So now we're going to move to our guest portion. So today we're interviewing Maya Portillo. Maya is a former policy analyst and now a policy associate at the Center for Early Learning Funding Equity at Northern Illinois University in partnership with the Governor's Office of Illinois. Previously, she was an associate program officer at the McCormick Foundation, and Maya and I know each other through multiple histories. We met while we were working with Dr. Susan Newman at NYU in the Department of Teaching and Learning. We were also both course facilitators for the Intergroup Dialogue Project at Cornell, and we both worked at Cornell's Public Service Center as undergrads, where Maya worked with Upward Bound. In her free time, Maya loves reading, volunteering with American Needs You, and trying new recipes. So it's so great to see you today, Maya. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. So first, I just want to know about your job. What is a typical day in the life like? So I'm a policy associate for Selfie, as we affectionately call it. It is Center for Early Learning Funding Equity. And there's really no typical day. So we kind of split our workload between client-facing work and then our own research that we produce. So depending whether or not there is, you know, a client project that's, we have a deadline soon, then that will be obviously the priority versus if we have some more downtime, we can work more on our research. So it just depends. And what kind of clients are you typically working with in a week? And then I'd love to also hear about your research. So for the client side, we uh, typically work with state agencies, state early childhood agencies, or those that house some of those funding grants. So our main client right now is the state of Massachusetts, their Department of Early Child Education, and we are working with them on some of their financing strategies for their subsidy program and kind of larger examination of their child care financing work. So that's been really exciting. Um, We did their market rate survey back in the fall. And that for our listeners who don't know what that is, that is a requirement by the federal government if your state receives funding from the Child Care Development Block Grant. The Child Care Development Block Grant is used for subsidies for lower income families to access child care. And so every three years, states have to submit a market rate survey, basically doing an examination of what the market costs are in your specific locality for child care. And then you do the analysis of whether or not the voucher price that the state allocates is at the 75th percentile of Mm -hmm. that market rate. I'm so sorry, that was a lot, but... That's super helpful. (laughs) And now we're working on some cost modeling for them to not just understand what the market can bear for childcare, but what Mm -hmm. is actually the true cost of care for providers in Massachusetts, whether it be Mm -hmm. family childcare providers or center-based providers. So that's been really cool. 
And can you give us a quick like 101 of cost modeling? So cost modeling is a way for any locality, maybe a state, maybe a city, to look at what the true cost of care for um, providing services for um, children are. And so it's it's really simple. I think it's kind of this, like, it can be seen as this complex thing, but it's really not. It's just basically an Excel spreadsheet and you kind of estimate, you put in all these different assumptions for what a provider may have, like the costs that they may incur. And you can do different simulations with it to look at, well, if uh, child care workers were paid, maybe uh, what they should be, <laughs> you know, how much would that uh, increase their bottom line? And how much would the state need to, need to invest to be able to meet that increased cost of care? So mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a ton of different simulations you can do, but that's just one example. I sort of think of it as like setting a budget, like a market rate survey Mm -hmm. is sort of like looking at how much I spent in the year 2020 and saying, that's the only money that I can spend for this year. Even if like Mm -hmm. groceries have gotten more expensive or my rent has gone up in the intervening years or whatever, it's just like putting a cap on how much you have at your disposal based on sort of an outdated estimate of how much you spent two years ago as opposed to like, these are what my costs are expected to be this year. This is how much I'm going to spend on food. This is how much I'm going to spend on utilities. This is how much I'm going to spend on going out. Mm -hmm. And then just like planning a budget to meet your actual needs in in any given year. Gotcha. So it's using previous years as data to inform the current year. So a market rate survey is doing that. A cost model is like, is like estimating what your costs will likely be based on like, yeah, like true expenses for, for that given gotcha. year, assuming that most things have gotten more expensive. And Maya, tell us more about the research part of your job too. We have dabbled in a few different research projects. The main one I'm working on right now is looking at uh, how states spent down their uh, child care stabilization dollars, mostly from ARPA and the American Rescue Plan Act. And like what innovations states were able to make using those dollars? What did they do to stabilize their workforce if they did? And just kind of looking at a landscape analysis there. And then also looking at if there were any additional equity measures that they took in their funding formulas with their stabilization dollars. So whether or not they used SPI or social vulnerability index or any other like measure to help more equitably distribute their dollars. Mm-hmm. And when you're looking at the whole suite of strategies that states could be using to spend that money on their childcare sectors, what kinds of things have you been finding and what strategies do you think have been most effective? So we've mostly focused on really workforce because we felt that that was probably the most important thing that states should uh, have been doing or have been using their dollars. And I say that very humbly. So it's not only where they chose to guide providers to use their dollars, but it was also an interesting idea of how they got the dollars out the door, which is very, very wonky and specific, Mm -hmm. but the how and whether or not states had structures already in place to give dollars straight to providers or give dollars straight to employees as a workforce bonus is really interesting, right? Like it either enabled states to move really quickly or not because they were had they were stuck in administrative processes and like just kind of operational like stoppages. Here in Illinois we we already have been working for many years now with like a quasi 
government entity that helps our departments get out dollars to providers. And so it was kind of easier for folks here to initiate that process. But I will get back to you on the rest of that. <laughs> All good. So you'd say that there's there's sort of a sense that Illinois was already moving in the right direction in terms of synthesizing a lot of their infrastructure for childcare and removing a lot of those administrative barriers. Are there other maybe lessons learned from the era of COVID and from the American Rescue Plan specifically that Illinois officials are sort of taking to heart? And as sort of the second part of that question, when the money runs out, do they have solutions in the pipeline for making sure that the sector is still supported. It's so funny that we're talking now and not like two weeks ago, because now this, the governor had his budget address. And mm-hmm. so we were able to see that, yes, in fact, he is continuing on and has made a $130 million investment to continue wow. on what we're calling like workforce compensation contracts. So mm-hmm. basically, they were this idea of like, how do you stabilize income, like dollars that are coming into providers that is not dependent on attendance and it has to be separate. And so there are these additional foundational contracts that providers will get that has to be used towards increasing your your employees' um, wages. And that is separate from the dollars that they would get, right, from just, you know, whether it be voucher or private pay. So it's a pilot. It's an obviously pilot format right now, but um, the fact that there was such a big financial investment is a testament to the work that folks here in Illinois already did in stabilization world. So he also like just like early childhood was his number one priority in the budget address, which was like really cool to see. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> yes, but literally right before this call, I was going through all of the governor's budget addresses from all the states and trying to see trying to answer that question exactly Haley like Mm -hmm. are there increased investments past COVID era dollars that the states are going to be giving so we'll see yeah yay (laughs) I want to ask too because I know that you studied industrial and labor relations at Cornell and then I know that you worked uh, when you're working at NYU you worked with playful learning landscapes and I also know from working with you on some diversity equity and inclusion initiatives at Cornell that you have such a broad range of interests and I'm one my question is how do you do it all and two how do you see those lenses informing each other and informing your work I think the answer is, is that it all kind of is baked into one another and it all feeds in to each other. Like it's not, it it makes kind of sense when you think about it, right? Like thinking about DEI work and thinking about research and policy and workforce and early child education. It's taken me a while, but I think I've found like what I am most interested in. And for me, initially I thought, you know, purely looking at labor issues was something that I was so fascinated by. And my mom still cries because I'm not a labor lawyer, but like, (laughs) then I got really interested in early in education, right. As a, as a vessel for potential vessel for social mobility. And then I kind of went further down that rabbit hole when Caitlin, we were at NYU with early child education as being absolutely foundational and 
something that was so complicated that mm-hmm. I just had to keep digging because I was like, I still yeah. don't understand. <laughs> right? um, but to me, like, it's my interests have always been shaped by the inequity that I saw growing up. I was like, slated to go to one high school but obviously like we did not live we did not live in the community where I was where my mom wanted us to be in so you know having to to lie about where we live just to get a good education will never be okay to me right to to have to play a game that is (laughs) unlawful right and just 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 for a better education and that is, that is absolutely true in early childhood. I still get mad about it to this day. Like I yeah. still brought it up at like Christmas dinner when <laughs> like, I don't know, we get it. <laughs> yeah, no, well, it's your passion. It. It's your why. It fuels you. Of course you'd reconnect with it. Yeah, in early childhood um, and that brain development happens so fast and is so important for the next years in your life that um, we don't really have any time to waste and funding it in equity is kind of at the heart of what drives this all, right? It's like the dollars that um, are driven into one provider's center versus the other. And depending on whether or not you can afford that or whether your voucher is accepted and or, you know, it it's just kind of a game, it feels like. And yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, like trying to trying to provide a little bit of context for for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with the childcare system in the U.S. For one thing, it's not really much of a system. It's sort of like a patchwork of small businesses with providers squeezed very tightly between upward pressures of trying to fund their staff salaries and downward pressures of what parents are feasibly able to pay. And so yeah, my general question was, you know, what's, what's some of the research questions that you and your team are asking to drive solutions for how to relieve some of that pressure? (laughs) Yes. And I just want to say providers inability to pay is, is not at all like on them, right? It is a critique of the work, but you're absolutely right. There's an extraordinary amount of pressure on providers bottom line, because Providing childcare and educating our youngest children is a very expensive business. And the the cost of labor is your main cost driver in any childcare's budget. And so at the end of the day, salaries are your more your most expensive line item. And so what providers who have been successful in raising their workforce salaries is a few things. One, you know, maybe they're in the higher income area and so they can, you know, the parents can pay more. But, but two, most, most, I, I would bet you that most of the time they are blending and braiding funding streams because funding comes from federal, state, and local uh, sometimes. And so, if you're able to draw down on multiple funding streams, you're able to somewhat double dip, right? And so that gives you more cushion in your in your bottom line to be able to hopefully increase compensation for your workforce. But there's no requirement to do that, right? That you have to pay a certain minimum to other than if there's a you know minimum wage law in your state. There's no requirement, right? And so the question that I think we're grappling with is 
how can the state relieve some of the administrative burden to do all of that blending and braiding? Mm-hmm. And is there a way that at the state level, you can do that for them, right? And so at the end of the day, you're just getting this contract, right, that stipulates, oh, a certain percentage of this should go to increasing your staff's wage. Um, But the rest is for you to run your business as you know best. So it's complicated, and some states have already been thinking about how to do that especially with the stabilization dollars. So we'll see what happens in the next few years. Yeah. And something that strikes me across all the different things you've been involved in, and especially in your current role, is just this mission-driven piece. Can you talk to us a little bit about, you know, the mission of your organization and your personal mission? So the mission of the organization, the idea is that funding mechanisms matter. And while Anyone you talk to who knows anything about childcare will say we are an underfunded system. But the way in which providers have to do the gymnastics of trying to figure out one funding stream that comes from the Department of Health and Human Services versus another funding stream that comes from maybe your, you know, Department of Education, we find that really technical and very specific work to be fundamental and to be incredibly instrumental in changing the outcomes that children receive or have. So anyways, that all aligns with the work that I do because Mm -hmm. it's very close to my personal story and believing that education and participation in the labor force are huge cornerstones to social mobility And Mm -hmm. I know personally what it's like to move in and out of social classes and the advantages Mm -hmm. and disadvantages that yields. But regardless, what has kept me grounded or tethered to advancing further has been education and a supportive community Mm -hmm. that has encouraged me to move forward, which I have come to realize is an incredible privilege um, in this country, which is not right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We've talked a bit about how the funding streams impact providers specifically as their own sort of kind of child care industry and the status of the workforce within that industry in terms of providing adequate salaries for child care workers and early educators. But the flip side of that picture is also the families that, you know, parents' ability to participate in the workforce is in many ways contingent upon having care for their kids. Uh, and if they don't have that, then that obviously has a significant impact on their ability to go to work. So sort of a two-sided question here. One, is that also part of the equation in terms of the research that you're doing? Uh, And two, is that also sort of shaped by this this personal experience or personal mission that you have about the impact of education and workforce attachment on family economic well-being? Thank you for pointing that out because I don't think that part of early childhood and care is talked about enough. One's ability to drop your kid off at a high quality home or center or wherever that may be, and then be able to go participate in the labor force, they are inextricably linked. And if you do not have childcare and the ability to work, then you are stuck. And while we don't particularly at at Center for Early Learning Funding Equity, we don't particularly look into the impacts on the family, we know that 
when you look at the formal structures of education and you think about funding equity and mechanisms that you are affecting in turn families and and children but the second part of your question is absolutely it's it's linked to my experience and the experience of of those who have similar stories to me and that is a huge part of why I'm so interested in labor and I'm so interested in early childhood because they are linked. Yeah, every guest we have on the podcast, we always get to talking about the person's why and kind of like the deep reason. So that's my favorite part. I love hearing people talk about the thing that lights them up and the thing that really keeps them going and for them, how they create meaning out of like a set of different experiences. So thanks for sharing some of your why with us. And speaking of some why, so Maya, you and I, I remember having a conversation with you in a laundromat (laughs) when we were at NYU, we were collecting data, and that really was a a cool project that we were part of. So we were working with Susan Newman, and we were doing this, you know, playful learning kind of, playful learning landscape embedded experience in laundromats. And I know that, Maya, you continued that project. You and Susan wrote beautiful articles about it. Can you fill us in a little bit of that project and what that was like for you? Absolutely. So this project, I was working with Dr. Susan Newman, as you talked about, and it was basically a project to examine some work that the Clinton Foundation, to their Too Small to Fail initiative, had done. So what it was, and it, it is, of course, based off the research by Kathy Hirsch-Pazic and Roberta Golenkoff. It's really, you know, very similar. So the intervention was to place literacy corners in a set of laundromats in New York City to examine the effect that they could have on parent-child interaction and see what that yields. So what we found, and I'm sure you all know to be very true since you, you both have worked in this project before or in this universe before, is that through the kind of insertion of the literacy-rich environment, but also what was interesting about this pilot was that there was a trusted messenger in the form of a librarian who would come and do story hour that with those two things in hand, that it, it did increase the opportunity for learning for those those patrons of the laundromat. Yeah. And I just remember visiting these laundromats and we had, you know, the two conditions, there was the control and then there were the condition, the condition that had the playful learning experiences. And I remember going to the control ones and being so bored and, you know, and walking around and being like, okay, there's nothing playful going on. And then just being able to go back when there were books and there was more set up in the environment. I think there were signposts around the laundromat, like encouraging kids to count, encouraging them to fold, encouraging them to like race to fold, to match socks or to fold laundry and to sort. So just visually seeing it, that was really my first experience. Like, wow, this is amazing work. I want to keep doing this. How do we keep scaling this work? So much Um, more joyful. (laughs) So joyful, yes. And just going from like on a Tuesday, seeing a control site and on a Thursday, seeing an experimental site, it's just day and night. And my, in your article, I love that there's this section that you have at the end of the article that's called Take Action, and it has actual just suggestions and recommendations for how to continue this work in a classroom or at home. Can you tell us a little bit more about the implications or that that area of your work too? Absolutely. Well, Playful Learning Landscapes has the ability to be a low-cost intervention, which makes it a really appealing for those who maybe don't have the resources as a bigger organization, right? And so 
when we think about where parents and children spend time and have time that they're maybe not engaged or, you know, interacting, you think about a laundromat, you think about a bus stop, you think about a park, you think about opportunities where there is the ability to add rich language that can really just prompt the adult in the child's life to ask questions to your child. And so the idea of the take action component is to hopefully engage and empower those in communities, wherever, to build or create something like this. Was that the connecting thread for you between doing playful learning landscapes research and getting into early child education and care policy making? Just sort of this like take action piece, or was it more to do with low cost interventions and really thinking about like equity and access? Or other, I guess I shouldn't. Yes. <laughs> Just those two reasons, nothing else. Yeah, no, no other reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, probably probably both, but the latter rings a little truer for me, maybe just where I sit now, because how can, you know, that was a very successful initiative and intervention, and particularly what I learned in philanthropy as well is like, that can be seen as a drop in the bucket in the larger system, right? Yes, you can replicate this in many communities. Yes, you know, the price tag wouldn't be that much, but what is something that if it is successful, you can scale and bring it up to the systematic level. And I was just fascinated with that idea and the idea that, A, maybe policymakers don't know about these interventions, right? But B, okay, well, then what are the interventions that they are adopting and what is the evidence behind, you know, its proven success? So a lot of things go, go into that, but yeah. that's definitely two of the things, Haley. And talking about scaling it, so another research article of yours, Maya, this is your 2021 paper, so pretty recent, where you talk about getting books into children's hands, creating a citywide book distribution policy using a mixed methods geospatial approach. I would love to hear more about this methodology that you used and also how you kind of started to look bigger and think about scaling to the city level. Yep, this is a really cool project. It was done in partnership with a a funder in Philadelphia, but also the city. They had, or maybe still have, an effort to increase book access to hopefully have every child reading in Philadelphia by the time they are in third grade. And so this program specifically recruited community organizations to distribute books and it was a citywide distribution effort. Mm -hmm. And so our job as the evaluators and researchers were to see if that worked, <laughs> see if the program worked in doing just that and distributing books to those children and families who, who needed it most. And we did that with this GIS mapping, which was really, really fun because what we did was we were able to get data from all of these uh, providers or organizations that did distribute books and then overlay that with demographic data and socioeconomic data to understand, again, if books were really going to the folks that, that needed it the most and who were farthest away from access. Yeah, this one I think is really cool because I've never used like a GIS approach before. I think GIS tools are really helpful because I'm a visual 
learner mm-hmm. and I pro like processor. And I think many people are. And and so especially when you're delivering information to people who are not in the research and who aren't inundated with the research and data every day, it can be very overwhelming to show you know, a histogram or a bar chart and uh, move through it really quickly. And so what I have always advocated for in my work in each of my positions has been to use more maps and visualizations that help orient the the reader or listener. But what, I mean, some of the drawbacks, right, to using JS data, particularly at a city level, is that if you're not having if A, you're not validating that research with qualitative work, then you may be missing some of the narratives that you wouldn't be receiving, right, mm-hmm. in just numbers themselves. And two, it may be more helpful to look at a, at a granular level. We know that communities have a huge impact on a child, and that is the same for how that child interacts with their everyday environment and what they're exposed to. And so I think this was a really good first study, but I think the second iteration of this work and if the initiative is still going on Mm -hmm. is to look at more of a community level. January is the planning month, or at least it is for us. I kind of assume it is for most places focused on policy, especially coming out of an election season. But I'm just sort of curious about what initiatives you've been working on and whether or not you and your team have a sense of what your 2023 priorities are going to be looking like. Absolutely. The the amount of retreats I've been in, planning strategic retreats. You feel like um, inundated? <laughs> I do feel inundated, but you're right. That wasn't a, a complaint, but it was, it was absolutely right. Like in terms of timing, we are thinking about kind of our our quarter goals and the research and publications we want to put out. So a few things that we have been working on and are hoping to continue to work on. One of the things has that I've been personally very invested in has been working on um, cost modeling. And so with one of our clients, we have been working on creating a cost model to look at the true cost of care for childcare. And so Really how childcare market is currently priced in many places is that you're looking at what the market will bear. So the market rate for childcare, which all that means is basically how much are families willing to pay. But that doesn't necessarily represent the true cost of care. So if we were in a high quality center home, what would the the wages be, right, for our childcare workforce? What should other inputs look like that are probably different than what currently exists. And so putting that all into a model and trying to think through both, are these inputs correct? Because as you can imagine, any little thing can throw off your total costs pretty drastically. But B, how can this tool be helpful for you as a state administrator um, to think about where you're setting your rates and what are other funding mechanisms you could be utilizing to help get to this true cost of care. So we have been working on that. And as a product of that work and other work we have done in this arena is to think about how to produce a common vernacular when we talk about cost modeling, because I would say a lot of people know about what cost modeling is, but until you 
have been down in the weeds and Mm -hmm. actually creating a cost model, it can be kind of overwhelming and kind of abstract. And so just breaking down some of those barriers so we all kind of understand and are on the same playing field is is something that we'll be working on. Okay. Moving on, we've been looking at funding adequacy. So early childhood is currently funded with through multiple funding streams. And so funding adequacy aims to help states understand how resources are being distributed against the various needs of your communities and geographies. And so that will be a big part of my work moving forward. And I'm really excited about it because it will utilize some of those GIS school skills that we talked about mm-hmm. earlier. And will also just be like a helpful resource for whatever locality or state we, we work with on this to understand how all of the different funding streams work together to help or maybe not serve students as well as, as it should. <laughs> What have been the most challenging and rewarding parts of your job? Early childhood funding is very complicated, (laughs) as I'm sure, like, yeah, you, you, you both know. And sometimes it feels like I figured it out. And then sometimes Mm -hmm. I feel like I don't know what I am doing. (laughs) Like, I, it's. It's it's always so polar opposite too. It's like, oh, I, I finally, I think I figured this this thing out. And then there's this whole other part of it where it just completely is mind boggling. Um, yeah, sounds like life in general. Yeah, <laughs> you're right, you're right. But, I, very I, <laughs> but I also like, I can't lie. I love that complexity. Like I love that each day it feels like I'm learning a new part or relearning something because obviously things are always changing. So um, I can't complain too much because I also kind of like it. (laughs) And what about policy work in general? I know for both of you, you know, hearing like just, you know, Haley talking to you and hearing updates about like this policy passed or like this is a new obstacle. What are your like uh aha moments? And then what are your moments where you're like, oh, I just got to push through? Hmm. I want to hear from you, Haley. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I think the aha moments for for me personally come from the people that I've surrounded myself with in this work who are similarly dedicated to expanding funding and who are similarly focused on issues of equity. I think the most challenging parts come from people who either don't appreciate how significant this issue is, or even when it's pointed out how complex the system is, how desperate the need is for investments, they still just are not bought into the framework at all. What are some of the biggest misconceptions in your field? Before doing policy, I had no idea what doing policy meant. And I think most people don't know what that means. And so sometimes it feels like a black box. And even though I'm in that black box, sometimes I feel like I'm still discovering it. But also what have what I have found is and what I maybe previously thought that it's incorrect is that there's one person in the sky who's like doing everything or is somehow making everything shape shift or happen, right? And that's just not true. Policy happens over a lot of time with many people and happens across many different disciplines. And so it's fascinating to me how very, very slow policy works, but also how many people 
touch the work in every different way. And so I think that's fascinating. And I, and I love that. Mm-hmm. I hope this image comes across as very endearing, but I'm sure as both of you with experience teaching and working with young children, policy work reminds me very, very much of like kindergartners on the, in the park or on the ball field or whatever, making up rules or <laughs> rules to a game that they invented. <laughs> absolutely that's a great metaphor (laughs) well as a final question Maya we love to ask what do you think is the best part of being a kid in 2023 I really love this question so thank you so much for asking because I on the side I also nanny for two families and so I feel like I get to know what it's like to be a kid in 2023 because I'm not a parent myself. But what I'm so impressed by every time is my the kids, the kids that I nanny for, all of the books that they have and the characters and the diverse topics that are explored in these books. Like I, we we're all the same yeah. age but like we we did not have that right growing no, up and I just never remember like being exposed to people who looked like me or like shared my same mm-hmm. cultural heritage so like mm-hmm. things like that are so cool to me and I'm so glad it's normalized um in a way that it wasn't for us yeah I agree completely and Maya thanks so much for joining us this was really really wonderful Maya thank you so much for joining us and for chatting with us I'm going to thank you. I had so, I truly had so much fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we have for today. Curious listeners like this podcast. If you liked it, subscribe or follow if you loved it and we'll see you next month.